0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Hello, I'm Richard Reinsch. Thank you for joining us today. I'm interviewing Dan Mahoney on his wonderful new book, The Statesman as Thinker. Daniel Mahoney is one of our leading conservative political theorists. He's professor emeritus at Assumption University. He's a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute and a senior writer at Law and Liberty. He's the author of numerous uh, books and essays, including most recently The Idol of Our Age, how the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. He's also the author of The Conservative Foundations of the Liberal Order. And he's, going to, he's the author of a new book, which will be out soon, from St. Augustine Press, titled Recovering Politics, Civilization, and the Soul, Essays on Roger Scruton and Pierre Manant. Dan Mahoney, glad to welcome you to the show today. Oh, it's a great pleasure, Richard. Uh, so, Dan, thinking about this book, The Statesman as Thinker, Maybe start off with kind of articulating for us, what is statesmanship?
0: Yeah, you know, statesmanship is one of those categories that has, if not been lost, it certainly is radically underappreciated. Um, I think the word statesman is indispensable for conveying a certain human and political possibility of true political greatness. Now, the ancients spoke about greatness of soul, which usually had a, or included a political connotation, uh, somebody with rare human qualities who embodied the moral virtues, to some extent the intellectual virtues, courage, moderation, prudence, the god of the lower world, as Burke called it, um, uh, and uh, justice. Um, uh, you know, so the word is a way of differentiating ordinary political leadership, no matter how competent or even good, from excellence in the political realm. And um, uh, for me, um, the the greatest statesman in history have not only embodied these virtues in a way that is public-spirited and patriotic, living up to the best traditions of their country and of civilization itself, but they've also thought long and hard about politics, human nature, the human condition. That, of course, opens up to even greater thinking. It's very hard to think about those matters without thinking about philosophy and religion, too. Uh, So... If you think of Solon, the founder of Democratic Athens, or Cicero, the great orator and philosopher who tried to save, unsuccessfully of course, the Roman Republic against Caesarian despotism, one thinks about many of the leading American founding fathers, a great figure like Edmund Burke, uh, the Anglo-Irish parliamentarian, statesman, rhetorician, Abraham Lincoln, the savior of his country, in the 20th century, I think the two greatest statesmen are undoubtedly Winston Churchill, who in a way inherited a sound political order. There had been no revolution or coup d'etat in Britain since the glorious revolution of 1688, and then of course Charles de Gaulle, who really had nothing to support him, A, uh, a political system that was decadent. That collapsed in the face of the German threat and invasion in June 1940, but who really saved the honor of France as the leader of Free France and then founded a new, more viable, we'll see how viable, but more viable uh, French political constitutional order, the French Fifth Republic. Uh, they, the men I highlight in my book are all thinkers as well as actors. They embody, I think, this rare combination of greatness and moderation or magnanimity, greatness of soul and moderation that defines statesmanship. I have pointed out elsewhere, and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, end my response here, that the American Political Science Association, which is not the worst of the lot uh, of professional associations, although so, well, it's getting as bad as the others at this point, but <laughs> unfortunately... But uh, some years ago, I counted, they had 41 subsections uh, that they recognize as fields of political science. Not one of them had to do with statesmanship. And by the way, political scientists uh, address questions of statesmanship. They usually do it through the lens of leadership. But leadership is, uh, Woodrow Wilson talked about leadership in a, in a sense of the You know, the American president uh, directing, maybe even manipulating public opinion. That was a very common view among the progressives. Walter Lippmann, when he was a progressive. Um, And uh, leadership, of course, think of the the great totalitarian tyrants of the 20th century. Mussolini the Duce, uh, Hitler the Führer, Stalin the Vojd; Mao the great helmsman. Uh, le- leadership really is a value neutral uh, concept that is perfectly compatible with tyranny so statesmanship's a very precious and indispensable category that has unfortunately become uh, rare today but it it shouldn't be rare if we really want to understand political phenomena as they are
1: um, you know this prompts a question. I think you know the question I'm going to ask. Now, you say the American Political Science Association had not one section devoted to the study of statesmanship, and yet uh, we, we speak of, and you've listed some of the statesmen you profile in your book. They've held together, changed the course of political history in the West. Is there something about democracies, our democracies, that leaves us unable to appreciate these statesmen? or to even recognize them uh, when they're among us. Um, Also, thinking as well, recent statesmen, uh, those who deserve honorable mention uh, that you might want to mention just to help our readers sort of understand more of what you're describing.
0: Well, that's, of course, a very good and natural question to raise. Yes, I do believe that democracy has a very difficult time accommodating greatness. I think probably our greatest guide to this is Alexis de Tocqueville, whose entire intellectual political project was sort of bringing a modicum of excellence and appreciation of greatness to bear in this emerging new democratic political order that he saw as more developed in America, but he certainly saw that uh, aristocratic Britain, liberal aristocratic Britain was heading that way, and even Uh, revolutionary France was heading that way, unevenly and problematically. So yes, um, I do think there's a huge problem, and it has something to do with the constant tendency of democracy. I'm going to quote my friend Harvey Mansfield, to democratize. And that means to flatten and level, but it also means to turn the salutary recognition of moral and civic and human equality into an aggressive and indiscriminate passion for equality, as Tocqueville called it. So that's the problem. But let me give you the other side of the picture. I make the argument in the book that even though the ancients were the best theorists of the mixture of magnanimity, of greatness of soul and moderation— Uh, thought and action, uh, statesmanship, and the cardinal virtues. Uh, uh, And there were a few great practitioners. I mentioned Solon, one would have to add, Pericles of Athens, Cicero. Um, There were certainly more tyrants, and there were certainly more maybe consequential lives, the kind that Plutarch deals with in his comparative lives of the great Greeks and Romans. But if you really want to look for exemplars of... The ancient model, the ancient model informed, you might say, by a Christian solicitude for the ordinary human person and the common good, you're more likely to find them in modern times. I mean, a Lincoln, a Churchill, a De Gaulle, a Burke. So um, now I think that possibility is diminishing and will continue diminishing. As the sort of classical and Christian embers of our civilization, uh, you know, as those flames uh, diminish, as uh, you know, to use an old image, uh, but a good image, we're we're living off of old capital, old moral capital, and uh, uh, you know, people like Churchill and De Gaulle and Lincoln could defend common humanity and the achievement of a democratic political order. Uh, while also uh, embodying certain possibilities of human greatness. And I think today, wokeness or radical progressivism or uh, sort of leftism on steroids, it's all about a sort of war on excellence. The great Roger Scruton, who you mentioned I've just finished a book on, uh, spoke about the culture of repudiation, this urge, this passion to negate and repudiate and even cancel not only living exemplars of greatness and moderation, but you might say the whole tradition, everything, everything, the civilized inheritance that's been passed on, on to us. And we know that's essentially totalitarian. That's no different than the French revolutionaries or Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge trying to start from a year zero, you know, to see everything in the past as darkness and the Precondition to building a bright, uh, progressive future involves the extinction of, uh, you know, our inheritance. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a comp- your question is a great one. My answer is complex because I think the phenomena are complex. So for a while, democracy was capable with certain manifestations of greatness. But now I think we're seeing in some quarters a sort of open war on greatness and our civilized inheritance. The runners up and we can we can come back to this, but in my afterward I discuss Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher who were great conviction politics politicians who defended a mix of conservative and liberal wisdom, our civilized inheritance, the market economy, constitutionalism. They were very lucid about the threat that communist totalitarianism posed to Western civilization. I think they were great. Uh, great well, Reagan was a great man. Thatcher was a great woman. I don't think they were thinkers in the sense that Lincoln or Churchill or De Gaulle or Burke or right. Hamilton and Madison, for that matter, were thinkers. But I think they were certainly admirable as uh, 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 leaders who... Um, um, are certainly contenders. You know they're they're kind of in my second tier of uh, of, of great uh, statesman leaders in the 20th century.
1: I want to think about the title of your book too, Dan. Statesman as thinker. Talk about you know these aren't these aren't just men of action. They are that you talk about commanding practical reason that they exercise. But these are also deeply well read educated people whose awareness of history prudence political thought all of this is sort of guiding how they approach their tasks the people that you profile you know had had you know Lincoln maybe not so much but they've all they had all written uh, extensive studies of politics in their country Lincoln of course gave us though these tremendous speeches and the tremendous Lincoln Douglas debate. So that's his contribution. But And of
0: course, he wrote them all. He didn't rely on speech. Writing. He
1: wrote he was incredible. Yeah. I mean, the the Lincoln Douglas debates are tremendous education to just work through them. Talk about that part of being a statesman.
0: Even George Washington, who I treat tangentially in the book, I begin the book with a distinction between the souls and political action of George Washington. And Napoleon Bonaparte, with the help of uh, the great French writer Chateaubriand, Washington himself was not a really a thinker or a writer, though he his state papers, the farewell address, and and uh, the letter to the Jewish congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, are masterpieces. And uh, but he was a man who was deeply influenced by his reading of history, and Addison's Cato, for example, which. Uh, Which provided a model of Republican restraint. So it would be very difficult to think about Washington being who he was without his knowledge of history. He also had the good sense when the Federalist Papers were published to realize these were much more than an occasional or momentary defense of the reasons for ratifying the Constitution. They were a great book of, 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 of constitutionalist political philosophy, and he paid for the Publication of the first bound volume of the Federalist Papers in Richmond, Virginia, the, uh, uh, in I think 1788. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 the engagement with serious reading is so important. With Lincoln, we know that Shakespeare was a very powerful influence. He loved Macbeth, obviously, because Macbeth was a play about tyranny and the t- tyrannical temptation. He once read large chunks of Macbeth to the cabinet as they were rolling down the Potomac in 1863. One can't picture a more recent American president doing that. Uh, Burke was certainly, Burke, the, the friend of the American desire for if independence or at least uh, self-government, uh, the defender of the rights of the dispossessed and disfranchised Irish Catholics of which he, he was an Irishman with an Irish Catholic wife and mother, uh, but he was deeply influenced by his reading of the classics, including Aristotle and Cicero, but also more uh, contemporary and modern and Christian writers. Um, uh, Churchill was a historian who read very, very widely, uh, not only about the English-speaking peoples, but uh, he was a civilized man. I think he read much more widely in history than probably something like political philosophy, although the great the, sto- the great story is often told. It happens to be true that the translator of Aristotle, uh, Weldon, had sent a copy to Jenny Jerome uh, Churchill, Churchill's wife, who then sent it to Churchill when he was on the northwest frontier in India, and he read uh, the Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, and... Uh, he wrote back to his mother saying, "It's you know, it's a glorious book." And uh, but he said, "I knew I knew most of that already, you know." And uh, uh, he had some understanding of what it meant to be a gentleman informed by the moral and intellectual virtues. Uh, uh, and uh, de Gaulle uh, was a, a, a student of political and military history. He knew the great. French literary classics, Racine, Corneille. He was a a admirer. He could. He had memorized almost the whole work of Charles Péguy, the great French Catholic philosopher and poet, who had taken aim at uh, at secularist fanaticism in France uh, after 1905. He had been a great supporter of Dreyfus, but he saw how. The Left Party Was Using the Dreyfus Affair to Give Rise to a New Demagoguery. I could go on and on and on, but uh, these figures were, their own thought was not simply thought about their own action. Although there was some of that, the war memoirs, for example, of Churchill and de Gaulle, but they were also thought more broadly about politics and the human condition with the help of classic works of Politics, history, literature, and philosophy. Then, of course, there's Cicero. Cicero was the greatest figure in history. Who was a serious philosopher who wrote his own versions of Plato's Republican laws. Whose book De Officiis on duties is perhaps the greatest and most influential work of moral philosophy ever written. It's an assault on the Epicureans for disparaging moral duty, and public spiritedness. And, you know, Cicero had a pattern. When he was busy with politics, he just read on the side and wrote letters to his friend Attica. When he was out of power or exiled or about to be killed, he wrote serious philosophical books. (laughs) You know, he went back and forth. Uh, Churchill was famously given the Royal Order of the Boot in July 1945 after saving Britain and the West. And, but to our great advantage, he wrote his war memoirs uh, in response. So, uh, uh, But yes, these are these – are, Churchill once said in my early life, published in 1930, that a man must nail himself to the cross of thought or action. Generally, I think that's true. But these were men who nailed themselves to both crosses.
1: Yeah, you know, think about bringing this uh, understanding of statesmanship out more. You write about the contrast between two men who do immeasurably important things in politics. And you try and help us to understand why one is a statesman and why the other one isn't. And the two men I'm comparing here are Washington and Napoleon. Illuminate that comparison for us.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, Napoleon once said, uh, he lamented that they want me to be Washington. And uh, he didn't want to be Washington because Washington was a man of Republican rectitude. He, um, he set a model for his country. He was president for two terms. He knew, in part, not just out of benevolence or altruism, but out of a proper sense of honor uh, and uh, ambition, honorable ambition, as Robert Faulkner calls it, that you know, uh, part of his greatness would be knowing when to go home, as he did. He went home to Mount Vernon in 1797. He would die just a couple years later. Uh, he, uh, in 1799, but Washington was a man of character, a man of Republican rectitude, and he was a man who knew that true ambition must be informed by moral limits and a sense of moderation and restraint. Um, as Chateaubriand says in his memoirs from the other side, Uh, Who Chateaubriand knew both men. He had met, as a young writer, he had met Washington in Philadelphia on two occasions. He said, you know, it didn't really bother Washington to go home uh, uh, and to take up other duties. And it was part of his greatness in a way that he knew how to go home, as I mentioned a moment ago. Napoleon um, was a great man. Tocqueville said about him, he was as great as you could be without being good. We had to be very careful. Somebody like Paul Johnson, whom I respect a good deal, but Paul Johnson wrote a little book on Napoleon, more or less comparing him to Hitler and Stalin. That goes too far. Yes, he unleashed a lot of blood by unleashing uh, uh, the wars of the empire, which took the lives of millions of people in the course of, of uh, two decades. But at home, he did not rule by terror. I mean, uh, Chateaubriand was shocked because he killed one of his political opponents, the Duc d'Angelo, who had been involved in some low-level conspiracy against him. But killing one of your opponents is a lot different than what Hitler and Stalin did. <laughs> Napoleon was an impressive man in so many ways. Um, he, too, could write, and his writings are worth studying. And the French are ambivalent about him because um, he undoubtedly displayed what they call gloire, glory. But he did not know how to go home. as De Gaulle says in a great portrait of Napoleon in his book France and Her, Her Army that judgment has to be torn about Napoleon because he was a great military strategist. He, uh, he had really impressive human qualities. But in the end, he just didn't know when to stop. And De Gaulle's conclusion about Napoleon, I think, is very fitting. In the end, he severed greatness from moderation. And he went too far. If he had stopped in 1807 and agreed to peace with Russia, you know, the peace of Tilsit, didn't violate it later, I think he would be remembered as a unbelievably consequential leader and statesman. Yes, who uh, and maybe a man who would put an end to the, to the you know the terrible unrest and violence. We might call them the terrible rough edges of the French Revolution. So even his autocracy could be justified as an alternative to terror. But he just didn't know when. He did not have the sense of limits appropriate to genuine statesmanship, and so. It was, I, I, I succumbed to the overwhelming temptation to begin my book with a comparison between the two, partly because I was reading Chateaubriand, it was so beautifully laid out, I said, here it is. If we want to concretely illustrate the difference between the statesman and a less than honorable ambition or a uh, a leader verging on despotism, it's uh, it's Napoleon. Uh, and so that contrast, I think, is extremely instructive. I'll just say that one, one good thing in, in, in Napoleon's defense, though, it was much harder to be Washington in France. Uh, America had this Republican political tradition going back to the colonial days, and France was a mess, and he inherited all the problems associated with the revolution. That said, he didn't even try.
1: <laughs> On, okay, so this this idea of limit, of moderation, you also discuss in the book the inheritance, uh, not, uh, not so much with Cicero, but even with Cicero, there's an understanding of philosophic reason, the Christian inheritance and the way that guides their statesmanship and their own magnanimity uh, maybe talk some about that, because that's maybe also another way of thinking about Washington and Napoleon or other figures in, in, in history.
0: Absolutely. The modern, the modern exemplars of, uh, of, of the statesmanist thinker or this coming together, this unforced melding of greatness and moderation, as I call it, um, not all of them were Orthodox Christians, but all of them were deeply marked by Christianity. Washington's ultimate convictions, you know, somewhere between deism and a very loose uh, Episcopalianism. Washington, nonetheless, I think, had a genuine faith in divine providence, in the moral law, and um, I think Christianity was one of the sources of his moderation. Lincoln, as I show in some detail in the book, had very idiosyncratic uh, views about religion, He certainly moved in a more Christian direction, certainly deeply influenced by biblical language and categories. I do think his moderation and greatness of spirit is unthinkable without the Christian um, presence, you might say, in his soul or in American life. Burke is more classically Christian not uh, particularly doctrinaire. He had no prejudices against Roman Catholicism or against Greek Orthodoxy or anything of the sort. He, uh, he wanted all the great religions to form an alliance to defend Western civilization against the ravages of Jacobinism. And I could go on to Gaul, who in many ways is the most classical of these figures, you know, uh, some have said most Machiavellian, although I, I, I challenge that view, but he was a very serious Catholic in ways that I trace in the book. Václav Havel, the last figure in the book, the great anti-totalitarian dramatist and future post-communist president of first Czechoslovakia, then the Czech Republic. He, um, he had heterodox views, but he always spoke about the memory of being, a sense that human responsibility was remembered, we were held accountable to by, you know, a higher power. So I think the only way the classical ideal of greatness and moderation really took root in civilized human life was when it came together with a Christian view of humility and limits. Because Christianity really moderated the rough edges of classical magnanimity. Think of Shakespeare's Coriolanus, who just won't bow before a perfectly reasonable request of the people You know, to show their, their wounds. He, it's beneath his contempt. You know, the, 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 true magnanimity involves an appreciation of the common good and some solicitude for ordinary people. You know, Churchill said during his wartime speeches, what are we fighting for? He didn't say democracy. He didn't say human rights. He said Christian civilization. And he, he says we're fighting to pr- protect, as he said the Iron Curtain speech, the humble cottage homes of ordinary people. You know, that sense of benevolence. De Gaulle called the man of character the "nay protector, the born protector. I think those formulations are unthinkable without the influence of Christianity.
1: I want to talk about uh, Winston Churchill here uh, we 've touched on him already. You take on in your book the view uh, that he was a hedgehog, that is to say, he got one thing right. He got Hitler right, but the rest of his career was a series of remarkable failures. He certainly did fail in his career uh, in World War I. Uh, of course, he 's trying to find a way to break out of the stalemate in the trenches in Europe um, by, by sponsoring a naval expedition but uh, let's let's talk about him, uh, and let's talk about what he gives us and your study of statesmanship. Well, you
0: know the Dardanelles campaign, which you just referred to, is often used against Churchill. But in fairness to Churchill, his strategic design and his tactical design was solid. Uh, the British decide to pursue the Dardanelles cam- campaign and the events at Gallipoli that followed, but without. Um of following without following the plan that Churchill had devised. So Churchill knew that the plan they were going forward with wouldn't work. So he got blamed for it anyway. You know,
1: you know, Dan, in uh in the film The Darkest Hour that I think you and I both admire, they let Churchill's character make that point. You know, at at one point he's you know, he this is used against him by Lord Halifax and he's, you know, he, He observes, you know, they didn't follow my plan.
0: Absolutely. So he he gets a bum rap about that. Look, he was certainly 100 percent right about communism. While Lord George's government was withdrawing the very minuscule British and, of course, Wilson was doing the same with the American troops in Russia, Uh, Churchill wanted an alliance with the Russian whites to, uh, as he put it, to strangle Lenin in his crib. I think that was advisable. And uh, he saw the truth about Nazism very early on. He saw the problems with disarmament. I don't think he was so wrong about empire either. It is a modern prejudice that civilized empire or a decent form of colonialism is somehow impossible or a terrible evil. But um, Churchill could be very critical of, uh, he was very critical, as I point out in the book, of certain abuses by... British and mainly Egyptian troops during Lord Kitchener's reconquest of the Sudan, as chronicled in 1899's The River War. One reason he opposed um, a precipitous granting of independence to India is he thought that it would lead to fractious division and in the end to sectarian violence between Hindus and Muslims. He was right in 47, 48, a couple of million People died on the sub- uh, the Indian subcontinent uh, he he later admitted he had underestimated the fact that the Indians would do pretty darn well comparatively with self-government or certainly not degenerate into the kind of despotism one saw in uh, post-colonial Africa in the sixties and seventies um, He was right um he was right in his opposition to socialism. He was right in his support for a modest welfare state within a market economy. He was a glorious historian of the English-speaking peoples. So, uh, no, I don't. uh, And um, I I think that uh, uh, he was much more right about many more things than his critics and opponents
1: were. Just, Just to mention here, too, I mean, we say he was right about Hitler. I mean, he's, he's right about the German nation years before the hostilities begin. And he's, he's in the wilderness and trying to rally people to his view. Uh, so he's actually seeing things further ahead, and he's right.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, well, those wilderness years, which lasted from 29 to 39, and then after being chancellor of the Exchequer, he would not be in another British government until he was named First Lord of the Admiralty, a position he had at the beginning of World War One, He had, it uh, was named on September 3rd. Neville Chamberlain, of all people, brought him into the cabinet. You know, the British Navy flashed the lights, like the Morse code. Winston is back. Yeah. And that meant the British were serious. You weren't you're, you're going to win war with Neville Chamberlain at the helm. Of, uh, so uh, even though he was a, a patriot during the war until he died of cancer, but yeah I, it, it's just absolutely false that Churchill was wrong. And being right about Hitler and communism was pretty pretty darn big things, you know and um, yeah, uh, and yes, in the wilderness year, the wilderness years are particularly important because they show his courage. They show his willingness to buck his own ruling conservative party to give advice that was unwelcome. To speak to the nation, he pretty much alone with a few supporters like Eden uh, spoke out loudly and forcefully about the remilitarization of the Rhineland and the failure of France France and England to do anything about it. And maybe his most wonderful speech besides his worst speeches or maybe the Iron Curtain speech of March 5th, 1946 is his great speech before parliament. October 5th, 1938, on the disaster that was the Munich Pact. And he explains why peace is impossible uh, in in the short run or long run between the British democracy and Nazi Germany. And he knew that there was no ordinary Germany, uh, which the conservative political class did not really appreciate. So um, Churchill would have had no problem appeasing a non-ideological uh, Germany with limited territorial ambitions, but that's not who you were dealing with. And uh, and he saw those ten years. Yes, he he had, for somewhat romantic reasons he uh, st- he supported King Edward during the abdication crisis because he was a law- he was a monarchist and uh, and and you know which is really ironic given the fact that King Edward had German sympathies. You know they had to send him to be governor general of the Bahamas, so he wasn't in. in, in in in, in any kind of proximity to Germans who would listen to him. Uh,
1: uh,
0: But, uh, yes, Churchill made mistakes, and uh, no biography of Churchill should be a hagiography, but he was, like all the figures traced in my book, an authentically great man, and he was no racist. He was a friend of the Jewish people, by the way, and the Balfour Declaration, a point constantly stressed by Sir Martin Gilbert, one of his best uh, biographers. Now, all in all, I think he was uh, the greatest man of the 20th century, although I consider de Gaulle to be the sort of most thoughtful statesman thinker of the 20th century.
1: Um, I want to try and join together to another thinker you profile in the book, Edmund Burke. Um, A facile view of Edmund Burke is he's all over the place in his political judgment, so there's no threat or consistency or unity in anything he's doing, so he's just just a politician. Uh, But Churchill, of course, wrote a brilliant essay, which I know you admire, Consistency in Politics, where he helps us understand Burke's career and thought and statesmanship, Uh, help us understand Burke— and uh, who he was exactly, and you know, maybe it's really the French Revolution uh, where he really shines the most. But yet, also was a friend to the American colonists, and pointed out that their tradition, that they had already developed a self-government, pointed to the need to let them alone.
0: That's absolutely right. Um, Churchill's essay "Consistency in Politics" is the best succinct expression of the consistency, the principal consistency that underlies Burke's statecraft and political thinking. Uh, W.B. Yeats in a poem called it The Great Melody. All the the parts fit together in the melody. Uh, And so uh, uh, Burke always believed that conservation needed to be accompanied by reformation, but both were radically incompatible with what he called innovation or radical innovation. To innovate is to start anew or to tear down, uh, to repudiate. It's year zero thinking, while the political or prudent thinking is about the proper melding of conservation and reformation, which have nothing to do with revolution in that metaphysical sense of complete innovation. Uh, So that helps us understand how things fit together. But Churchill famously said, that the burke of authority and the burke of liberty are one, whether fighting uh, the corruption and aggrandizement of a corrupt court, whether defending the long-established self-government of the American people. He would have preferred, I think, that Americans remain part of the empire, but only if those liberties were respected. And so, in the end, I think he nodded and understood why the Americans had to go. Um, He uh, pursued a 12-year indictment, impeachment of Warren Hastings, the director of the East India Company for corruption and for a failure to respect the local traditions and customs of uh, India's people, especially its Hindu majority. At the same time, this is why Charles Fox, Thomas Paine and others were shocked when Burke published uh, Reflections on the Revolution of France in the fall of November of 1790. But they shouldn't have been shocked because the French Revolution was based on a principle of innovation that was completely alien to Burke's moral principles and political reflection. And he saw it all from the beginning, you know, with the September days and the first outpouring of violence with uh, literary intellectuals who tried to tear everything down and start anew, with the deep hatred of the Christian religion that increasingly dominated revolutionary currents. He even predicted the coming of full-fledged terror, and that the whole thing would end with some general in charge, often seen as a Uh, a prophecy about the coming of uh, militarized despotism under Napoleon. So, no, Burke, it's all of a piece. Burke's liberalism and his conservatism are one of a piece. I think Burke's a great model for us today. Not that our society is Burke's society, whether in France or in England, but the great imperative of statecraft and political thinking today is to keep the best of liberalism, Uh, representative government, the market economy, um, you know, a kind of progress within the contours of a civilized inheritance to keep that together with our inheritance. And that means a respect for the wisdom of the ages, that means a respect for the Christian religion, that means um, a preference for reforming conservatism over nihilism and radical innovation. So, uh, no, no, Burke is—anyone who thinks Burke is all over the place is um, uh, wrong.
1: I want to uh, maybe turn to Charles de Gaulle, a thinker that you've you know written about in your career. You write about him here. We, we touched on him some. Um, you know, a question that I, I have for you is he seemed to really understand the problems of France prior to the German invasion and surrender of France— in what two weeks or sixteen days in nineteen forty in May, uh, which also imperiled you know much of the British land army, which was trapped in France once that surrender happened or once that rout happened, I should say. Um, what did he understand about France, and then what was you know what was he capable or what did he actually achieve uh, when France surrendered and he fled uh, had to flee to London?
0: Well, I mean. The Gaulle had a very capacious soul, and he was very lucky to have an upbringing in a traditional Catholic bourgeois family that nonetheless respected the Republic. You know, Jean Morat, the French right-wing leader, the head of Action Francaise, once said very, uh, in a very lapidary way, if you want to understand the French, you have to understand the French hate each other. And what he meant is, since the revolution of 1789, the divisions between monarchists and republicans, between Catholics and bitter anti-Catholics, anti-clericalists, between, let's say, the ethos of the Third Republic, which was called the Republic of Comte and Comte. You know, those French teachers were encouraging a secular ethos that uh, certainly wasn't relativistic, but it was uh, a secular modern replacement for Christian teaching and Christian ethics. The Dreyfus Affair again had divided France, and France had something like 15 different political regimes. I don't mean administrations. I mean different constitutional orders. I could go through them, you know, from 1789 through uh, Waterloo, you know, at least five. Uh, then you have the set, Yeah, you have the Orleanist monarchy, then you have the uh, Second Republic, then you have Louis-Napoleon's uh, empire, kind of bastard monarchy, pretend to, you know, pretending to be a resurrection of Bonapartist France. Then the Third Republic, which only came in because the majority monarchist party in 1875 parties could not agree on whether they would use the Bourbon or the Orleanist flag. And then the country's terribly divided over the Dreyfus affair. Um, A draconian separation of church and state is imposed in 1905, which separated church and state, but not the way we would understand that term. It outlawed all religious orders and all religious schools, and it made secularism the state religion of France which continues in a more modified form as laïcité, as they call it today. But then there was a coming together of Catholic and Republican France in World War I, the uh, L'Union Sacré, the Sacred Union. Uh, De Gaulle was a Catholic conservative who was also a Republican, uh, probably a Republican by necessity or by thought more than feeling. But um, And during World War II, uh, his great appeal to resistance on BBC, June 18, 1940, the same day as Churchill's uh, finest hour speech. It's a great moment, symbolic moment in the war. The two greatest European statesmen appeal to honor, appeal to resistance, appeal to the defense of what needs to be defended. They do so in the noblest terms. What de Gaulle saved. De Gaulle recognized that Vichy, this successor government to the French Third Republic, was the legal government of France. It had been voted in by Parliament, but he thought it was illegitimate because, in the words of Father Gaston Fassard, it was a slave prince, a prince esclavage. It had lost a sense of sovereignty, independence, and honor. And would gradually lose all honor, liberty, independence, and sovereignty to Nazi Germany, which happens to Vichy France by nineteen forty two it's not can't even pretend to be sovereign in even a minimal sense, so de Gaulle saved the honor of France um, He increasingly had the support of the domestic resistance, and that was very important because the communists had been allied with the Soviet Union until Operation Barbarossa, meaning they collaborated with the Nazis. But once Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, they joined the resistance, and they came to dominate many currents of the resistance. So, Uh, De Gaulle knew that without him, France almost certainly would have gone communist after World War II. We've got to remember in the first early elections in 45, 46, 47, the Communist Party would get up to 40, 45 percent of the vote in France because of this prestige it had developed uh, uh, during the resistance. So uh, it was De Gaulle's even greater prestige, this Catholic conservative Republican general that prevented France from going the totalitarian route after 1945. And then, of course, he knew that unless France came up with a better constitutional order, a stronger presidency, not this weak parliamentary system where coalitions shatter every eight, nine months. And that's what he does with the Fifth Republic. He tried to do it in 1946. His part of the RPF at some points get 40, 45 percent of the vote right up there with the communists but never the majority and it was really the Algerian war that gave de gaulle his opportunity to refound france to give her viable legitimate political institutions really for the first time in her history
1: um, and of course this you know we could we could do a whole podcast about that we could do a whole podcast about his role in uh, helping to quell the violence and tumult of the summer of 68 uh, his, his, his achievements are immense. I want to maybe here at the end uh, focus on a final thinker you profile, Václav Havel, who maybe has more of a limited impact in his, in his political rule, uh, but also the thinker aspect looms large, uh, including his wonderful essay, which speaks to us in our time, The Power of the Powerless. Uh, talk about Havel and what he means.
0: By the way, I was going to add, with De Gaulle, we could also talk endlessly about his, his writings, uh, especially his pre-war writings, where he deals with really deep questions, you know, the Nietzscheanization of France, the nature of political magnanimity. Very rare for a, uh, a, a political leader to think about those questions. But Havel, you're absolutely right that Havel's tenure, which is uh, m- more or less ceremonial, or at least limited political role, as president of the Czech Republic from 89 to 92, and then immediately after that, uh, excuse me, Czechoslovakia, immediately after that, the Czech Republic, up to 1905. He had some limited political responsibility, especially in foreign affairs, but most of his authority was ceremonial. But he played a major role in the transition from communism by setting a moral tone. What he did, and what nobody in the political or academic class in the West saw, was that the movement I use Solzhenitsyn's term, from out under the rubble of totalitarianism, was not primarily technocratic or economic, privatization. It had to be moral. And if it didn't have that moral component, then totalitarianism would just be replaced by new forms of corruption, and soulless technocracy. And it largely was. (laughs) But... uh, But Havel saw all that, and he did his best in some very luminous speeches, even as president, to remind people of the intimate connection between what he called politics, moral responsibility, and civility. But yes, I think he'll most be remembered not only for his underground activities and opposition to the totalitarian or post-totalitarian state, as he called it, but for those writings, um, those essays— uh, power the Powerless is, uh, and it's great evocation of living in truth, an evocation also made by Solzhenitsyn, played a very major role in crystallizing um, the idea that the totalitarian state had a particular vulnerability, and it was based on lies and could not resist an appeal to the truth. Uh, that's the the message of uh, you have the famous image of the Green Grocer putting his taking a sign down, workers of the world unite. That system depended on a kind of perfection and the mechanism of, of mendacity. And When people begin to tell the truth, uh, the, the whole edifice begins to crumble. And he saw that. I think one of his greatest speeches is called Politics and Conscience, where he lays out an account of, you know, Richard Rorty, the postmodern philosopher, used to say, uh, Patoshkin and hobble. they're great men, but... They talk about living in truth. They talk about conscience. They actually believe these are real things. Quite amazing, you know.
1: It seems uh, we need a statesman in our time, Dan, to call the lie on critical race theory, black lives matter, amongst uh, transgender ideology, uh, and these edifices of uh, falsehood will also quickly crumble.
0: I think so, too. And I. Uh, that's why, as I think you know, I've written several pieces, one for Law and Liberty on... Uh, the the, the uh, continuing relevance and deepening relevance of Havel's and Solzhenitsyn's call, calls to live in truth and live not by lies. This is an edifice of lie. I think it's, and these are big whoppers. The idea that there's 173 genders is, is a big whopper. It's, um, <laughs> uh, it has nothing to do with reality. I mean, maybe Eric Vogelin provided the best framework for thinking on, on this, although Solzhenitsyn and Havel did too. It's the forced imposition of a second reality on the common world of thought and experience. And in that sense, it's just, not in terms of the gulags or coercion, not yet at least, but it's just as surreally ideological as the totalitarian movements of the 20th century. Um, you know, somebody has to say, is in the grim Uh, brother's tales the emperor literally is wearing no clothes and because bodies are being mutilated and souls are being um, destroyed in the name of literal fictions in, in, in the name of ideology so yeah and I think on the conservative side of the political spectrum We have to move beyond a certain economism and libertarianism that says it's the economy stupid all the time. Now, for example, the economy is going to have a lot to do with the, I think, the likely results of the uh, midterm elections in the fall of 2022, but not just the economy. It's the general sense that, look, we have an administration, I want to get too specifically political here, that doesn't even have the normal instincts of political self-preservation. Normally, as your popularity is cl- collapsing into the 20s in the polls, you would move a little bit to the center to stem that. They're so committed to the second reality, to gender ideology, to critical race theory, to the idea that America is the most culpable nation in the history of the world. They're sticking to it, and they're sticking to the, to the green agenda and the war on fossil fuels, even if it uh, destroys the lives of working class and middle class people and makes a coherent American foreign policy impossible. So you can tell that ideologues are those who are literally impervious to reality.
1: Well said, Dan. Dan Mahoney, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book, The Statesman as Thinker.
0: Great pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Thank you.